Welcome to Bob Got a Microphone, the podcast that exists because I, Bob Tarantino, bought a microphone. There are a lot of interesting people out there, and these are some of their stories. In this episode, I'm speaking with author and academic Andrew Potter about his new book, On Decline, Stagnation, Nostalgia, and Why Every Year is the Worst One Ever. It's a pretty self-explanatory title, but we talk about whether decline is a subjective or universal phenomenon, whether David Bowie really was holding the whole universe together, and whether there's anything we as individuals and society can do to escape a terminal lapse into unreason. This is his story. All right, Andrew Potter, welcome. How are you? I'm good. I'm good, thanks. Uh, thanks for having me on. Been looking forward to this. So you've written a book about how everything is going completely to shit. <laughs> Elaborate on that. So so it's 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 a short book. It's about a 30,000-word 30, 30, uh, sort of mini book. Um, it, I, I was asked to write, contribute to a series of pandemic essays put together by Bibli uh, Oasis, the, the small publisher in, in Hamilton. I said, how about something on decline? The guy said, sounds great. And then I had to think, you know, what, what, what do I mean by that, right? So what am I arguing? Well, there's this Twitter meme that started around five years ago, basically where at the end of each year, it'd be like, wow, that was like the worst year ever, right? <laughs> you know, uh, and like New York Times would do that. And, and I noticed after like three years, every year was like the worst year ever, right? It was one of the things that, that for a long time, I kind of assumed was just one of those internet things that people, you know, hook on to, right? Oh yeah, last year sucked. Can't wait for this year. Boy, this year sucks too. But then I thought, well, what if we took it seriously? What if we actually took this? What if what if we're in the in this in this weird position where we're like these kind of dumbass characters in a Hollywood apocalyptic theory, uh, thriller where we're kind of like narrating our own the disaster as it happens, but laughing at it because we don't take it all that seriously, right? It's like actually, do the aliens actually are here and they're about to exterminate you? So what I do is essentially it's a very long, uh, it's a thirty thousand word attempt at explaining. Uh, an idea that I originally sort of hooked onto in William Gibson's book, The Peripheral, which is this this idea of the jackpot. For Gibson, the jackpot is an event. It happens off screen. He never really explains it in the book, right? But it's something that happened that went from the current world of 8 billion humans and civilization and so on to a, a future world about 100 years from now where there's about 80% fewer humans and there's still technology and civilization, but there's a lot less of it and something obviously quite horrible has happened right and he never really explains what it is in interviews gibson has said that the jackpot is he's described it as a civilizational car wreck 100 or more years in the making right he says it's not one event it's, this isn't hollywood right this isn't aliens this isn't the moon exploding this isn't a comet crashing right it's 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 something more subtle than that and what i tried to do is sort of articulate what what that might be so that's the point of the book is to say what if we're on a, a path it's you know hundreds of years in the making that is actually not progress and flowers blooming and you know everything getting better all the time, but leading us somewhere uh, somewhere much darker, right? What if what if this is actually a process of decline? So that's that's the, the jumping off point for the book. And so one of the reasons why I found this fascinating was because I, I was surprised that you wrote this book in the sense that so I've been reading your stuff for something approaching to twenty years now, and I remember a different Andrew Potter. I remember an Andrew Potter about a decade or so, 10, 12 years ago, who was sort of gently mocking the notion of decline and declinists. And in fact, you had some relatively harsh words for declinism yeah. as a sort of theory or as a, as a, a framework. So what changed your mind? 
yeah uh, i was i was afraid there'd be people who would who would have memories to go back more than it's like i was hoping that the sort of the cultural goldfish era we live in would sort of work because you know i wrote a book 10 years ago with the authenticity hoax would ends with a ringing endorsement of progress uh i wrote books called on declinism and or not, not books um uh, op-eds and so on making fun of declinists and declinism mm-hmm. uh so so what changed my mind a few things and and I'll say I'll say one thing at the beginning. This is a bit of a hedge, and it's it's it's. I'm not trying to say, well, I could be wrong, but I could be wrong. I'm, and I'm a lot less certain of myself now than I have been in previous writings. And probably just I read back some of my earlier stuff, and there's sort of a young man's cockiness of it all, right? Whereas now, just getting older, you sort of become a little more, uh, hopefully, intellectually modest. But there's also a sense that I don't need to be right about this. Unlike, unlike when I, I needed to be right about the counterculture, right? I needed to be right about hippies. Uh, I don't need to be right about this. And so if someone comes along, like Dan Gardner or someone and says, you know, every word of this is like Potter's got it completely wrong. If there's, a, if there's an argument there, I'll be like, okay, good, right? This is a useful exercise to go through for me personally. And I think probably for a lot of us, right? Because what I'm trying to do is show how there's some patterns at work. And they seem to be pointing one direction. If if those patterns are not pointing that direction, or if there are other things I'm missing, that's great, right? This is sort of part of the part of the usefulness of writing a thirty thousand word book that took you know eight months as opposed to spending three years on something where you come out <laughs> and use. I've got to be right. But but so so why did I change my mind? Largely because, quite honestly, there's three or four writers, economists, philosophers, and people uh, that I follow quite quite closely and always sort of calibrate myself intellectually with who. None of them are, are explicitly declinists in the way I sort of am in the book, but each of them is putting a piece of the puzzle when you put them all together, seem to sort of point in a direction that, that I end up taking the book. And that's, um, you know, if you, if you basically take Joe Heath's argument from his book, Enlightenment 2.0, which came out three or four years ago now, about the effects of basically the internet on, on our political culture. If you add that to Tyler Cowen's work on Great Stagnation Thesis and so on, and uh, later another book a guy, by a guy no one's read uh, called uh, J. Storrs McCall about Where Is My Flying Car, about the causes of our technological stagnation. You add a little Robin Hansen, who's a futurist at George Mason University, add some cyberpunk, and it all seems to say, you know, it, the, the conclusion seems inescapable, right? It's, it's hard to see where where the good news is if you actually accept what these people are saying. You know, one of the things, if, if, if you or your readers have read Joe He's book, Enlightenment, or, uh, Enlightenment 2.0, it's basically a very negative book. And at the end, he says, well, you know, maybe we could fix things a little slow politics, right? Like, but it doesn't really, uh, it doesn't really work. And I think Joe would admit it doesn't really work. So if he doesn't have a great answer, maybe, maybe uh, it's because there isn't one. So the upshot of that is I, I came at this quite, quite, quite reluctantly, but also almost inexorably, right? It was just simply following stuff I was reading and believing to its logical conclusion. Yeah, because I, I mean, I think the it seems to me, and you touch on this in the book as as one of the sort of mechanisms that's kind of the, the ratchet only seems to be going in one way. But when I sort of compare the conversations that were happening around this, say, ten years ago, with the conversations that are happening now, it seems the biggest change is social media and and sort of the type of social media and the type of interactions that are happening on social media, and in particular, Twitter, I think is probably the primary sort of locus for that. And I think, and I want to get into this in a little bit, but I, I think one of the things that we need to sort of tangle with when we're having this conversation is how Twitter in particular, and sort of the population of Twitter maybe torques the analysis a little bit. But before we get into that, yeah. one of the people that you mentioned in the book, who I think needs 
I'd like to tease out sort of the, what the argument here is a little bit, but Steven Pinker, I think is one of the people who would, I would imagine, take the opposite view and say, no, 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 the enlightenment project is still sort of unfolding. And, and here's a whole bunch of empirical data to demonstrate that. So you, you sort of engage with Pinker a, a bit in the book, but I want to tease out. So what does Pinker get wrong or what is, what is he overlooking when he's concluding? Yeah, no, that everything's still sort of on kind of an upward trajectory. Yeah, so that's a really good question. So, and, and I'm, uh, it's something I have to confront because I, I gave a very positive view to Enlightenment to Enlightenment Now, his book on uh, how everything's getting better all the time. I, I reviewed it quite positively in the LRC, the Review of Canada a few years ago. And what's interesting about Pinker's book, right, is he kind of convinces you that we're on this trajectory, right? Because it's, 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 you know, chart after chart after graph, all of them showing, you know, wealth, happiness, you know, violence going down. It's like, it's like the end of um, Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure, right? Bowling scores are up, you know, mini put scores are down and, uh, you know, the music, everything, the planets are all in alignment, right? That's like basically Pinker's book. And, and in fact, there's this one chart that I kind of referenced in the book that sort of shows living standards, right? And it's living standards from, you know, when Jesus was a boy until 1800 are like flatline. And then they go like this, right? GDP, right? What's that other than just progress? So, so what is, what do I take issue with now? There's a nugget buried in Pinker's book, which he, he takes from a guy named, uh, I guess a legal scholar named Daniel Cahan, who I don't really know his work. I kind of found this very, where Pinker got it from. But he, he calls it the um, tragedy of the belief commons. And what that is, is Pinker says there's this problem we've run into, and Pinker pegs it to his discussion of, of the inability to deal with climate change, which is that there is this um, habit now we've gotten into, call it, I guess a habit isn't really the right term, but this, this uh, phenomenon where people believe things, not because they think they're true, but because they help them with other things they might want, status, identity, belonging, tribalism, and so on. And that, and he says that sort of gets us in a situation where it's hard to resolve various collective collective action problems because people don't believe things because if they happen to be true, and once you believe that, you end up in these sort of basically you end up in a in a in a deep collective action problem, but it's a belief collective action problem. And I th I think Pinker doesn't quite concede in his book just how serious that is. One of the, so 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 I think here's basically what happened is is I reviewed his book, kind of liked it, and then dug more into what actually the, this tragedy of the belief commons amounts to. And you just see it everywhere, right? We live in a world now where a lot of what people actually believe isn't true in any meaningful sense. That is, isn't true in the sense of the old philosopher's notion of truth of, the, of it sort of mapping onto reality. It's true in the, in, it, it, it's, they believe people believe things um, for identity, tribe, status-seeking reasons, which really does, I think, hinder our ability to resolve the various collective action problems we face, climate change being the most serious, but in all other ways, lots of other ways as well. And so, so that's, that's essentially what changed, is uh, I started to take this idea of, of us being in a sort of a, a, a collective action problem of, uh, or a prisoner's dilemma of, of, of belief that uh, I don't quite see easy answers to. There are some answers, but I don't see easy ones, and I think Pinker downplays them. Right. So one of the sort of challenges I had in contending with your argument was I'm not entirely clear on what a couple of different metrics are here. And so I guess one thing I want to drill down on is how universal is this claim of decline? In other words, is this a claim about Canada? Is this a claim about you know the West, wherever we want to draw those boundaries? Or is this sort of a species-wide situation that we're in? It's a very good question because I I know that's that's um, 
uh, something that I sort of dance over in the book, which is just the various levels at which this is all operating, right? But the, the chapter on the pandemic isn't all about Canada, but it's a lot about Canada, right? Where I use Canada's examples and so on. So I think what, what I, where I would want to come down to, and this is one of those things where if, if I had another 10,000 words written in the book, I would probably try, try and spell this out. And, and I, I'm not trying to make excuses, but it's, it is one of the things where the, the compressed nature of it, I, I've, I've cut corners in the argument very places. So this is what's good to have these kind of, kind of questions. I think where I'd want to say is like, look, that what I'm arguing is that this is first and foremost a problem for uh, what we used to call the West, that it is the West that is suffering this first. And it's manifesting itself. The U.S. is always a tough one to sort of focus on because the U.S. is such a weird culture in its own right. But I think that um, what I want to say is that it's a problem for the West. And, and it's a problem for the West that, that Fukuyama was talking about when he talked about the end of history, right? Where did the end of history happen? Well, it's something called the West, right? And it was used of the you know, Soviet bloc and these and so on. And, and, so, and which is why uh, a few people who have sort of picked up on this book immediately have said, oh, yeah, like what's going on in Afghanistan is an example of this, right? Or what's going on in uh, uh, other places with the rise of China. This is an example of your thesis, right? It is and it isn't because I don't think it follows from anything I say that the West is going to decline and China is going to rise because I think ultimately this is a problem for humanity because the, 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 the theses and the themes I'm trying to spell out are ultimately problems about how humans' brains work under the conditions of information technology in modernity, which is sort of a, a mouthful. But I think that's basically it. And I think the, 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 the China's not going to escape that. They might be up behind us. We might be, we might be the spearhead of decline, right? But I think if, if, the, if the argument is right, everyone's going in the same direction, ultimately. If right. only because we, we are major contributors to the, the various problems that we're having trouble mm -hmm. resolving climate change being the most approximate one but i try not to talk too much about climate change because i don't want to end up i don't want people to think this is a climate change book because it's not i barely I barely mention it in the book but it sort of looms in the background of all of this and so so i think it's it's the west is where the effects of this are going to be felt first but ultimately i, I think all of humanity right and so th there's a curious dynamic at work here, and you touch on it in the book, and I'm wondering if we can kind of explore it a bit more, but it's this inversion that you describe of sort of the political valences here, right, where there's an inversion of, of left and right. And in particular, I, I think the notion of decline has historically been associated with the political right. And either, I'm not sure that's inverted, I think probably maybe everybody thinks that it, there's some kind of decline which is occurring, but that, that notion of decline has certainly spread. And so it, it seems to be as much you know, an observation or a commitment of those on the left as it is on the right. So what's happened to the left and the right in this conversation about whether competing trajectories of, of you know, progress or decline? That's interesting. It's interesting. Let me think about that. So, is uh, are, are you saying? Uh, sorry, let me just um, make sure I'm clear on your, on your question. Is your sure. is your uh, the framing of it that the right used to be more pro progress and the left was pro decline, and that's now reversed? Or no, I think I think the the inverse that that the conservative view was something along the lines of, and I'm caricaturing here, but but there was a golden age. We've fallen from that. And our political energies must be sort of devoted to kind of re-seizing that, that disappeared age, whereas the progressive left was, there's something in front of us that we can work to achieve. We should devote our energies to that. And now it seems that that lethargy or kind of malaise has sort of spread across the uh, across the spectrum where every or a lot of people are are concerned that there's there is no sort of plateau that we can we can obtain 
uh, yeah. through through the political process at least yeah so yeah there, there's a lot going on there and there's a lot of you know currents within the left and the right on this as you know um in cross currents and there was a time when i was a grad student in like so the 90s when the the idea that there was progress and that that progress could be achieved through some union of of little democracy capitalism and, and technological development was seen as highly highly right-wing view right the, the 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 kids that i went to graduate school with were just like you were you were basically a fascist if you if you thought that these things you know that that reason could be used to apply itself to the benefits of mankind right or humankind and so so even back then the, the left was pretty gloomy there was there there, there was a, a a former tradition earlier tradition of progressiveness on the left and 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 so on uh i mean look the, the communism was a progressive thesis right i mean it was like you just have a better way of getting you more stuff right mm-hmm. um but um so so i think what happened is essentially the we didn't use these terms woke back then right we called it the counterculture we called it identity politics in the early 90s and so on but essentially i think what happened is the old call it the socialist left for want of a better term got just completely taken over and dominated by the social called joe heath once called it the social worker left right the people who feel bad for other people right the identity politics and so on i think i think that's what's happened is there is no there is no socialist left anymore in the sense of people who believe that you could use society to like sort of overall advance and progress and 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 you know whether it's controlling means production or just simply you know, using a welfare state to advance society. The left has become very, very destructive and negative uh, in a lot of ways. And the right has responded to something close to nihilism. And so the, uh, you have this, uh, well, there's lots of great passages in the book, but there, there are a few, uh, I'll, I'll read a quote that I think really is uh, illuminating. So you describe sort of this kind of, un- not universal, but but a, a widespread sentiment that, quote, the game is rigged, the solution, and the solution is a combination of emotion, unreason, and identity politics, end quote. So, and there's this sort of inversion of, of right and left in the culture war, and I particularly like this one. So the norm floating nihilism uh, of the left has kind of migrated to the right, and the the sort of commitment to this imposition of rules without any sort of engagement or, or critique of those rules has kind of migrated over to the left. Is that, and is that part of the dynamic that you see playing out here? Yeah. That we just, and it's sort of a death spiral in a sense, like we can't really get ourselves out of it. Yeah. So, yeah. So, so yeah, the, the, this is good. Uh, so to elaborate on this, I think what's, what's really interesting is, so there was this basic dynamic we all kind of bought into of a certain age, right? I'm, I'm, I'm 50 and, you know, I grew up sort of with, the old 60s counterculture was sort of in the bat rear view mirror culturally for me, but sort of I grew up with, then there was punk and then there was uh, the culture wars of the 80s and 90s. And then there was the anti-globalization movement of the 2000s, right? So I sort of, you know, later waves of that came through. And so you sort of come up with this idea that it's baked in the idea that the conservatives are the norm followers and the norm pushers. And to be a leftist is to flout norms, to uh, be non, non-conformist, and so on. It just seems that that's like a fundamental identity. Leftism is, is uh, rule-breaking and uh, rule-following is on the right. And what, what gave that a sort of a natural the, – the, and, and while I argue in the book that there's no logical connection between those, there was a natural connection between that in the following sense. Conservative rule-followers also tend to be religious, Right. And so uh, or, or there was a, always a religious right element to all of that, which saw social order as as a good 
Um, and whether you want to back it up with um, religiosity or what, you know, uh, you, you can, you can be sort of George Grant about it, right? But it was basically order for its own sake had its own virtues, right? And there was a religious element to it. Whereas the, for the, and for the left, they, they, they could justify their norm flouting or rule flouting and nonconformity by falling back on a fundamental belief in the goodness of human nature. Right. It's what sort of gave that sort of the uh, the hippies sort of this thing is that, you know, humans are fundamentally good in the state of nature. You know, get rid of modernity, get rid of all these rules and the man and the conformity and the natural goodness of humans will allow us to sort of self-organize. And, you know, you could have communes, whatever. Right. And so so there, there was there was however flaky or whatever you wanted. There was a philosophy that, that underwrote. The, the, the rejection of norms. What's happened with the flipping, with the, the, the sort of the woke left being heavily invested in rule following and the right being heavily invested in norm flouting is that those old backstops no longer exist or make any sense, right? Um, the, 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 the woke left has nothing that underwrites their norm following except a desire to identify fellow travelers and uh, identify outsiders, right? The, the norms are just simply a way of, of identifying who's in and who's out, in-group, out-group. And that's why the norms keep changing, right? Because they're trying to like one up one another and so on. So, so there's no stability to them. And the, unlike on the old religious right, there was a stability to the norms that made sense. On the left, they don't make any sense, except insofar as they're part of the game. The right has responded with uh, a rejection of norms that's backed up by nothing, right? It's, it's straight up nihilism. And that was clearest with the Trump the, the, the Trump version of this, that there, there wasn't any basic faith in human nature that humans basically, in fact, just the opposite, right? There was a sense if you burn it all down and chaos, chaos ends up being the goal. So I think that's kind of what's in, the interesting thing that's happened is, is while on the one hand, there's no logical connection between leftism and counterculture and right conservatism and, and rule following, there was an alliance of philosophies there that made them kind of work internally, that now uh, doesn't exist. And what you have is basically this unhealthy dynamic of, not to sort of bring Jordan Peterson, but Jordan Peterson has this sort of like order versus chaos kind of thing he talks about, right? And that's essentially what's going on, right? The forces of order and the forces of chaos are at war with nothing underwriting either of them. And is there, is there any value in drawing a distinction between decline and stagnation? In other words, could we describe this situation that we're in as kind of the the working out of a cycle? And I, I'm thinking here in particular of somebody like Jacques Barzun's from um, book you know, 20 plus years ago, From Dawn to Decadence, where he sort of describes you know this epicycle that's kind of occurring with modernity and the Enlightenment project, and you sort of end up in this situation where there isn't upward progress or forward progress. But there isn't really a retrenchment either. There's sort of the, a, a kind of running in place sort of thing. Is it, so does that help at all if we if we think of this as not so much decline as stagnation, or or is there really sort of a a falling back or or a, a real sort of retrenchment that's occurring? That's a good. Uh, that's a good. For, uh, I like that. Let me think. I guess the question I would ask, and I don't have an answer to it, the question I would ask that is, is the stagnation and whatever the sort of however it manifests itself, um, can that be a stable state? If it can be, then, then, you're, then the answer to your question is yes. Um, but I wonder, can it be stable? And the reason why I, 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 I suspect it's not stable is that for the reasons I, I sort of pick at quite quickly in the book, there was a longer section on it that I ended up having to cut about trying to explain the relationship between growth and moral progress 
which I kind of steal from Benjamin Friedman, uh, the economist Benjamin Friedman has a really long book came out 10 years ago called The Moral, the Moral Consequences of Economic Growth. It's way too long. It's like, but, but for him, economic growth plays kind of the same role that inflation does in the economy. It, 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 it plays this role of like, you know, everything, the, 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 the thing just kind of gets a bit bigger each year, right? And as long as that's happening, people fundamentally have faith in the system. And that they, uh, it doesn't matter how much growth there is. And it, doesn't, it also doesn't really matter where, at what level you're starting. It's just the idea that each year will be a bit better than the previous one. Gives bit of faith in the system. You, you, don't look, you don't look at strangers so weirdly. You don't look at your neighbors so weirdly. You're not starting to sort of, it's not like hoarding toilet paper in a pandemic, right? Um, you think there's just going to be more uh, stuff. And it makes you sort of more open and less risk averse. And I think what I try and argue, and it, it amounts to just more of a, 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 a suspicion that it is a, a flatter argument, right? That, that stagnation pushes those, those tendencies in the wrong direction. That if things aren't getting better, they're almost by definition getting worse, as, especially at a time when you're bringing in more immigrants, society's getting older, um, so costs are getting higher. And, and I think you can see it now with like, you know, everything from the housing market to, to pension costs to all this stuff that, that I think my suspicion would be it's not a stable state, that, that, that stagnation itself breeds uh, the, the, the conditions for political decline that ultimately will lead us to other forms of decline. Interesting. And, and so I'm just going to quote from, from Barzun's book, because I, when I read that, or when I reread this, I thought, you know, this could have been something that was in, in your book. And it, it's just sort of, of a piece with it. Quote, the forms of art seem exhausted. Institutions function painfully. Repetition and frustration are the intolerable result. Boredom and fatigue are the great historical forces. And it seems to me that that's consonant with what you're describing. One thing I want to pick up out of that observation that he made is sort of the subjectivity of it, right? In other words, these are, in a sense, decline is, and I'm not sure which is cause and which is symptom here, but there's a, there's a sentiment, like a subjective sentiment that people have, like they feel that they are languishing, they feel that they are in a moment of frustration or, or boredom. So what that brings out for me is this notion, do we, are we stuck in what I'll call sort of a discursive loop here? In other words, the, the mere fact that we are saying, oh, there's decline, we are in a situation of decline, like, have we unleashed a kind of meme that we can't now pull back? Yeah, uh, great question. That's, that's great. I mean, I think I, uh, I was doing an earlier podcast with, uh, you might know, um, uh, do you know Mark Sutcliffe, Ottawa guy? Uh, was on the radio for a long time. Um, now it's on podcast. We were just we were talking about this because um, you know there, there is this kind of funny thing, right? Where uh, I started the book with that 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 great meme that someone came up with after David Bowie died, right? Where they say, you know, I'm, I'm not saying David Bowie was some old alien life form holding the universe together, but you know, look around. Now that right? he's gone, <laughs> now that he's gone, just look, everything's falling apart, right? And 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 then and then. You know, every every year at the end of the year, the newspaper wrap ups like you can literally go on and just Google like worst year ever, right? And there's like one from the New York Times in 2016, 2017, 2018, right? It's like worst year ever, right? And and you're right. Is this something that we've just sort of become? Am I just sort of narrating Twitter's own self uh, hatred to itself, right? Because I, I think I think it's it's it's, it's I think it, I think it's amusing, but also quite telling that you know people on Twitter refer to it as this hell site. They don't right. they don't say oh this great place that has some bad people. It's like no this this hell site. So so to to sort of focus your question a bit, you know, am, am I simply just sort of like responding to the Twitterification of a certain part of the culture, right? Is that sort of what you're 
you're you're asking. Yeah, like I wonder whether. So look, I'm on Twitter. It strikes me that Twitter has a, a particular profile, right? Like there are the the folks that are on Twitter, and maybe this is just a function of sort of who I follow on Twitter. But it strikes me that the people who are most active on Twitter are, are sort of a fairly small subset of the population writ large. You know, you've got you know academics, sort of journalists. You've got lawyers. You've got people who use words and who are who are sort of good at using words. And so I wonder whether this notion of decline, if we if we sort of, you know, polled the people who are on Twitter, a lot of them would be like, oh, yeah, I get it. But if I pull the, you know, a bunch of plumbers or, you know, the people who are kind of working at the grocery store around the corner, like they'd sort of look at me like some, I said something sort of wrong. And so I wonder whether there's there's a an irreducible subjectivity to this. Yeah, that's a really good question. And I think I, I, I tried, there, there's a similar passage that went from Barzun that you quoted. And I, I, should, I should read Barzun, I have not, and I, I ought to. Um, there's a similar passage that I used to quote all the time uh, at the end of Francis Fukuyama's original um, End of History essay, where in the very, like the last paragraph is very downbeat, right? Where he says, the end of history will not be uh, an enjoyable place, right? It will be a time where we will just see the endless curating of the past, be a time of nostalgia, a time of boredom, a time, you know, he just kind of lists all these things like it is just because there will be nothing, there will be no, uh, nothing to, to, to animate the spirit, right? Nothing, no, no pride, no, no ambition, no honor, right? All that great stuff, right? It's all gone, right? It's just iPods and or iPads and, and Netflix and everything, right? And so, so this is a very good question, right? Am I, am I just simply respond to the world weariness of a certain slice of, of, of the world and sort of narrating that? And of course, the answer is no, right? Um, uh, but I'm certainly aware of that. And, and I think this is, this is something I, I probably should have talked a bit more about in the book is because I talk about social media, I talk about the internet. Uh, and the question is, am I just talking about Twitter, right? And I'm talking about Twitter in large extent, I think if I were to sort of expand on this, I would say no, because you know what? Facebook has these same effects and other things have the same effects. YouTube has hugely toxic uh, aspects to it and so on, each in different ways. And I think there's probably something, it's probably a good academic project to go in and talk about the internal logic of, uh, or the, the functional logic of a lot of different social media and how they, the types of things that they that they encourage, the type of things that they, they discourage. Uh, I've never really seen anything interesting on that. And that would be a really useful thing to do. But But sort of, the aspect of Twitter that I that I sort of pick up on and, and, and I kind of don't make this explicit in the book, but I think is what, what's going on in the culture at large is its responsiveness to triggers that or, or uh, to, to, to phrases or terms or words or something that, that trigger our system one. Uh, responses, right? This old system one versus system two, the, the Kahneman Tversky distinction between, you know, your gut instinct versus your rational, explicit rational behavior. I mean, Twitter is whatever else it is. It's 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 an outrage engine. It's a it's it's a it's a mach machine for making you angry, for making you scared, for making you uh, you know anxious. It's not a machine for engaging your your faculty of reason. You know, people have tried like Twitter essays and so on like that, which which can mimic it and so on. But but that's that's essentially what Twitter's Twitter's value add to the universe is, right? And what I think has happened, and I try to sort of talk about when I talk about the casinoification of the culture, is that th that logic that you see online, not just on Twitter, but on Amazon, on Netflix, on 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 Instagram, it's all a whole bunch of things that are designed to tweak or trigger your system one. Dispositions, and that applies almost everywhere now, 
right? It applies uh, when you go shopping. It applies when you go to the grocery store and to the to the to, to the IKEA. It, it, it so much of our infrastructure or our institutions have become responsive to system one triggers in a way that I think is highly destructive. And that's that's sort of what I, what I was getting at with with the sort of um, uh, that that idea of the casinoification of culture. That that um, everything that's bad about a casino went online, and then everything we learned about online has now made its way back into the real world, and or is making its way back into the real world. And I think you know, while our infrastructure, our, our, our built infrastructure used to help mitigate those effects, now it's, it's exacerbating them. So that's a great spot, I think, to segue into what hopefully is, is you know, a bit of a counter narrative here. Um, so let me pose two questions, because I think they're related. So, so one is, what would disprove your thesis here? In other words, is there something or is there some set of conditions or, or circumstances that could obtain that, you know, if we were to look back 20, 30, 40 years from now, you would, you know, demonstrate to you, oh, yeah, I, I got that wrong. Uh, we weren't actually in decline, like this was sort of a momentary blip. And related to that, is there something that individuals can do or or communities can do sort of at the at the sub societal or sub national level that would be productive in this environment of decline ooh good questions ha huh. yeah so uh question of metrics yeah you're right i don't have the, there's no uh there's no like metric there's no declinometer that i have in the book right we're at you know this is nothing like the uh um, bolton atomic scientists right we're like 2 minutes to midnight uh, that so so uh, yeah. What sorts of things? You know, it's funny when when uh, I, I submitted the, the the manuscript in March, and uh, there was talk about bringing it out in June, and uh, they said, you know, we're going to kick it to the end of the end of the summer, beginning of September, just for you know, that's when people are paying attention to, and it'll fall, and nobody will pay attention. And and I remember thinking, but the pandemic will be over, right? <laughs> like everyone, like everyone be like, if you only knew. <laughs> yeah, no. I remember thinking everyone's gonna be vaccinated, and everyone's gonna be like, oh yeah, remember that pandemic? No, let's party, right? And I and I thought it would just like it would just arrive at the absolute worst possible time. And then uh, happily, right, Afghanistan collapsed, the Delta variant came along, and uh, we're in the middle of a terrible election, you know. And uh, the I, uh, IPCC uh, came out with. Uh, uh, yet another um, extremely alarmist uh, climate report, right? Just like two weeks ago. So the planets are aligning, right, very nicely for for the for the uh, for the argument of the book from a, from a selling point of view, right? Uh, I've had a whole bunch of people say, "Oh, look, you're right," right? Um, and but but also in the same way that you know cl climate change, people always say, you know, you got to distinguish between climate and the weather, right? Uh, one one cold summer doesn't doesn't prove disprove climate change, you know, this and that, right? I think there's no one event. Right, that we should. Uh, but I, I would think, and this is a good question, and you know, I'm kind of thinking uh, on the fly here because I hadn't thought about this, and this would have been a great way to sort of end the book on, on exactly this question: is what sort of metrics, right? Um, I think at, at the sort of level of of the West, there's a whole lot of institutions that don't seem to be doing so well. NATO failures in Afghanistan, for instance. You know, I mean, the UN. It's always been a shit show, so nobody's going to pay attention to that. But trade deals and so on, and just general Western solidarity. Uh, the, you know, the the EU kind of tending to seem like Britain leaving the EU is not a great sign, right? Any any signs that that collective action problems or institutions that are designed to resolve collective action, any signs that they are doing good things would be would be uh, you know would be a disproof of my thesis, right? If if the world starts being able to fix big problems in ways that we all kind of, and maybe I'm maybe I'm just being nostalgic, but seem to in sort of the post-war era, right? Where we set up these big institutions that sort of help the world get its get its act together. 
so that, that's one that's 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 one way and that's probably the one that I think is most most telling because ultimately I think uh, that's where at now there's a few other things that could easily happen I mentioned at the end of the book right if fusion or cold fusion happens and or if we figure out a way of painlessly sucking all the co2 to the atmosphere right then a lot of problems just simply go away so so there are definitely there are definitely things that that I would say you know decline averted, right? Or uh, looks like I was wrong on. Um, wh one major one, I think, is if if it turns out that our current fascination with slash loathing, self-loathing over social media just simply evaporates, you know? Like, and, I, and I'm open to that idea, right? That this is, we're still in the early days of the, the um, epidemiology of social media, right? And that maybe it's just something that's going to work its way through our society. And, and maybe already you're seeing it, right? Like people are getting off Twitter and starting like, private slacks people are you know people are finding other ways of engaging uh using social uh, media that's not as, as as toxic so maybe so maybe that's something um in fact that's probably i think a major thing we're going to see a lot more of what can individuals do <sighs> yeah you could tw quit twitter uh I think <laughs> something I, I tried to do i quit twitter for about a year and a half i i i, I rebooted my, i didn't know my account was still alive i sort of um, when the book came out i thought well let me see if i can reboot it just to sort of see if i can do some promo and stuff and it turns out Twitter gives you a year after shutting down your account. I shut my account down because I literally uh, was arguing with someone uh, while pushing my daughter on a swing. It was very, very uh, cinematic in the sense that I was, I was arguing with a partisan on, on Twitter while pushing my daughter. And she was like, push me harder. And I snapped at her like, leave me alone. I'm fighting on Twitter. <laughs> and I thought, this is crazy. Right? So I, just, I, deleted my, I deleted the app right there, undid the account when I got home and didn't look back for over a year and a half. Uh, I'm not sure how long I'll stay. But, you know, there's something... And this this sounds really sappy and middle aged to me, right? But but I think I, I wish people could find a way to have more kids, you know, not individually, but but I think societally, like, I, I I find of all the signs of decline that kind of disturbs me the most, decline in birth rates really kind of uh, the fact that you just stop having kids as a society when you get richer and and modern, uh, and there's all kinds of reasons why, and. You know, I, I have two kids. Uh, my parents had four, right? I mean, there's no, uh, you know, what was missing in my life that they had in theirs. Um, not like they had any money, right? But but I, I worry sometimes that a society that doesn't have children, um, well, it's it, it's by definition a society in decline, right? You're 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 baking in the the circumstances for your long term decline. So so I think countries like Japan are going to lead on this. They're, they're not, they're not, I mean, Japan's a great country, but it's, it's a sad country in a lot of ways, you know, and when you look at the numbers of where a lot of countries population levels are going to be, you know, not that long from now, 30, 40 years, they're going to be close to half what they were. Right. And it's hard to see that as anything other than a lack of faith in the future. Right. If, you, if you're not willing to have kids, if you're not interested in having kids, it's because there's something about the future. You don't see more humans as being valuable for or contributing to. And so I think that's, I, I think this is a very conservative thing to be saying, but I really think uh, our, our um, inabilities to get our heads around fertility rates is, is, is a concern. Right. Fascinating. Well, look, Andrew, I, I really appreciate you taking the time. Congratulations on the book. It's a great book. It's Thanks. a great read. I really enjoyed it. Um, hopefully we will discover that, in fact, you know, David Bowie wasn't the linchpin holding everything together. But Hope I'm wrong. Yeah. yeah indeed. <laughs> Thanks for this. I really appreciate it. It's nice meeting you and, and uh, I had a lot of fun. This is great. Great. Thanks again, man. Take it easy. Okay, take care. Thanks for listening. Hope you enjoyed the episode. If you like this podcast, please consider subscribing, leaving a review, liking it, sharing it with your friends, or inflicting it on your enemies. If you're still listening, you're probably the only one who's doing so. The secret number is 42. To claim your no prize, 
send an email with the secret number in the subject line to bob at bobgotamicrophone.com.